Friends, if you have a Bible, would you please turn there with me to Ephesians? We'll be in chapter 1, 4, and 5 today. Please give your attention, if you would, to God's Word. Would you stand as Tess reads God's Word for us? He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the, whole, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of wa water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are, because, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother Stay, look at that. The microphone helps to be on. All throughout scripture, it never tells us what the church is. It doesn't give us a definition. It doesn't say the church is dot, dot, dot. Instead, it gives us pictures. It gives us metaphors. It gives us images. And do you know why that is? Why does the church come to us in scripture as pictures? The answer is, because if it just came to you as a definition, then you would read the definition, you might commit it to memory, and you would say, ah, I know what the church is. I've got it. But Scripture does not allow you to do that. Because the church is living 
It is transforming. It is reforming around one central truth that Jesus Christ came to live the life you could not live and die the death you should have died. And we have the faith once for all delivered for the saints. But in every other way in your life, in every other area of your life, when you think about maturity, when you think about growing up, children, when you think about getting bigger, you know that you are becoming less and less dependent upon your mom and dad. Kids, please hear me. So you think that when you get bigger, you're no longer going to have to feed yourself. You'll be able, I mean, you no longer have somebody feed you. You'll be able to feed yourself. You'll no longer have to have somebody change you. You can change your own, clo your own clothes. You'll no longer one day, someday, have to have your mom and dad drop you off at school. You'll be able to drive yourself. You'll no longer, adults, have to rely on family to support your family your nuclear family, you'll be able to provide for them because of your own hard work in providing for them. In other words, in every area of our life, we are moving from immaturity to maturity by becoming less and less dependent and more independent. Maturity in every area of your life is the progress of growing more and more independent except for one area of your life, and that is your spiritual growth. Your spiritual growth is a process of growing from independent, more and more dependent. You're more and more dependent upon the finished work of Jesus because he is the only way you can be saved. You're more and more dependent upon God's word because you know that you do not have a light into your path. You're more and more even dependent upon your brothers and sisters with whom you worship in gathered worship at the local level. Why? Because you need them to see other facets of who God is. The church is living. And no matter how dire the circumstances may get, the church will never ever, ever die. Paul wrote about this in, Revel in Romans chapter 11 when he said of Elijah, when he said, quoting Elijah, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. But what is God's answer to him? God says, I have kept my, for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. No matter how dire the local church looks, no matter how dire the church looks across the world, you know what? She will always live. And scripture gives us two metaphors in Ephesians that I want us to focus on today. It gives us two metaphors. And you need to hear this because in every area of life, you are racing toward independence. And you're even racing toward independence in your spiritual life if you're not cognizant and aware of the fact that you're called to grow more and more dependent upon one another as the body of Christ. Two metaphors, the body and the bride. The body and the bride. The first metaphor of the body shows you your functional relationship with one another. The second metaphor of the bride shows you your vertical relationship with the Lord. The first, the body, 
shows you the way you are to serve each other. It shows you your horizontal relationships. The second, the bride, it shows you the intimacy you have with the Lord as your lover. The first one, the body, shows you the dynamic we are to have as members together. The second one, the bride, shows you your destiny in the presence of the King Jesus to enjoy him forever. So let's look at these two together, shall we? Two metaphors, the body and the bride. First, the body image. Body image. Ephesians was a circular letter. That means it was a letter that was written for not just the church of Ephesus, but for many churches in Asia Minor. And it was read in a local congregation, and then it was passed down. There are no local specific commands in this letter. There are no local specific answers to questions written by congregations to Paul. Instead, he writes it to many different churches and congregations. And he does so to remind them of their position in Christ, and he does so to remind them of what the church looks like as they live out their position in Jesus. So, you can see he says that we have in verses one, uh, chapter one, verse 22 and 23. He says, he has put all things under his feet and he gave them as head over all things to the church, which is his body. We have, we have one head, we are united, and we grow together. These are the principles that Paul lays out for us. We have one head, we are united, and we grow together. What does that mean? We have one head. Christ is our kafali in Greek. He is our head. He is our captain. He is the command center of the church. You ever, those of you who have horses, you know what this is like. When you put the bridle on your horse, you don't put the bridle on his legs. You don't put the bridle around his body. You put the bridle on his head. Why? Because you know that if you can control the head of the horse, you can control the whole horse. The legs have the muscle, but it's the head that has the power of that horse. It's the same way in the church. Christ is the head of the church. The elders are subservient to Christ. Christ is the head of the church. And we have one head. So that whenever the head decides to go a direction, the body also goes. Have you ever seen, have you ever seen someone or something that that wasn't operating in coordination. It's painful. Like, have you ever seen like a girls junior high volleyball game? <laughs> okay, that was me. Have you ever seen like, have you ever seen a phase of life that's really awkward? Of course you have, because you see the church all the time, right? It's a phase of life where we're really awkward. Like, you know when somebody can't control their body, like their head says, I want to go up and spike this ball, but my poor body doesn't exactly do that, and we end up tripping ourselves up and falling on our face. But Christ is making us one. We are growing up under Christ, who is the head. Verse 23 says, it's the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's a Greek play on words. Play Roma, play Romanu. It says he fills all in all. He is the one who fulfills and is filling all in all. That is, that Christ's presence fills his church. He is filling us. He is here right now. 
because he is the head of this church. We are one body under one head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only are we one body, but we are also united, therefore. We're united. Now, listen to me. Whenever you hear talk about the church being united, and most of you grow cynical about it. By one count, recently, there are over 20,000 different denominations of Christ's church. Now, I'm not talking about churches. I'm talking about denominations, groups, relationships of churches. 20,000. That means it's possible for you to visit a different, not just a different church, a different denomination every Sunday of your life. And you look at that and you go, okay, yeah, thank you. The church is united. Yeah, right. But it is. What Nathan read for us in the questions and answers in the larger catechism about the universal church, we are all united. And Paul says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Be eager. Spudazo. It means to give your very best effort. And most of us, if we're really honest, don't give our very best effort at anything except reserving the right to be right theologically before other brothers and sisters in Jesus. But Paul very clearly says we have one hope, hope of redemption. There is one body and one spirit, just as you're called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Listen, are you eager to maintain the unity with your brothers and sisters in the bond of peace? Not just in this church, but with brothers and sisters across the body of Christ everywhere. Well, what are the principles we have to help govern us in that way? Well, Paul gives us four right here. First, he says, one Lord. In the context of Roman civil society, to say that there was one Lord was to say that we believe in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation. Amidst all the Roman pantheon of gods, Christians claimed one God, and therefore the society looked at them and said, they're atheistic. Christians throughout history have claimed that there is only one way to salvation, and that is through Jesus Christ. And you and I both know that conversations about the exclusivity of Jesus at Starbucks don't go very far because people will say, listen, that's my problem with you Christians. Like, you just, like you, you just think that you're right about everything. Like, it is arrogant for you to say that there's only one way to heaven. But you have to call out those kinds of questions and recognize that those statements in themselves are also arrogant, aren't they? Because the only thing that those who claim intolerance, or tolerance rather, are actually intolerant of is the intolerance of their tolerance. Listen, everybody has exclusive faith claims. The question is, what is your one way? And here Paul says we have one Lord, which means that Jesus Christ is unlike any other God. How is that the case? 
Well, he was in the very nature of God, but he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Hmm? He also says the Son of God came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Every other religion says, here's God, serve him. Here are, you know, it's like, here are, here are the rules of our holy religion. Here are 10 rules. Go and do them. Here you go. Good luck. But the gospel is not that. The gospel is, here are the rules of our holy religion. But you know what? There's only one person who's ever accomplished those perfectly. No eye has seen. Isaiah says in chapter 64, he is shocked. And in his utter awe, he says, no eye has seen or ear has heard. No one has perceived a God like you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. We have one Lord, but we also have one faith, which means that it is by faith, not by your good works, that allows you to become one body. Not denominational identity. You cannot be unified by your good works. You can only be unified by faith. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul lists all of his good works out, and he calls them rubbish. He was impeccable as unto the law. He had the right pedigree in every way, but he calls them rubbish. Why? Because he knew the motives of his heart. He knew that his good works could not save him. Do you? One Lord, one faith. It says one baptism. Paul assumes Christians are to be baptized members of the church, which means that they are in covenant relationship with one another. Covenant relationship. When you take vows of the church, like when you take your wedding vows, you know when you take your wedding vows, it is a social vow you're taking before God and before other people to say, now, now, publicly, socially, in every way, we are giving you permission. Indeed, before the Lord, the Lord is saying, these two shall become one flesh. Physically, emotionally, in every way, they shall become one flesh. And in the same way, when you take vows of membership, you know what you're saying? You're saying that you are becoming one. You're locking arms together. You are doing life together. One baptism, which means that you all commit to hold each other's feet to the fire, which is an amazing thing. Like some of us just got back from being overseas. And when you're overseas, you see Christians overseas. And you see all these brothers and sisters in Christ from around the world. But you are locked with them in one baptism. You're being baptized into this visible community of faith. And you take vows together to love each other, to see the beauty and the glory of your Savior. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One head who is over all and through all and in all. Listen, if you have one Lord, it doesn't make you arrogant. It makes you profoundly grateful that he knows you. If you have one faith, it doesn't make you proud. It makes you radically humble because you didn't do anything to merit your salvation. If you have one baptism, it means that you don't become more independent. You become radical in your hospitality toward your brothers and sisters with whom you are one in the church. And if you have one head, it doesn't lead to anything else but radical submission in your obedience to what Christ calls you to be. Radical gratitude, 
He gives you radical humility. He gives you radical hospitality. And he gives you radical submission. Now, let's push this a little bit further. You, you are one together under Christ who is the head. And either, either you will be a mirror of his glory to the watching world or you will simply be a reverberation of the world's values to them. Because your unity together is not only a sign that you trust in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, but it's also a means of your evangelism. Jesus says in John 17, the glory that I have given, that you have given me, I have given to them, he says to his Father, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Why is diversity in the church so important? Why is diversity even in the local church so important? Every group that you're a part of outside of the local church, every group, every organization, every institution, people are joined together because of common affinities, preferences or where they live, homeowners associations based upon where their house is, country club memberships based upon the dues that they pay, listen, by class or by race or by geography, except one organization, that is the church. And diversity is important in the local church because when the world looks at the local church, they should stand shocked. That how can this person in this... Like, how can they over here and they over there? Like, they meet together in community group, but they have nothing in common. Like, how can this person of this race, this person of this class, this person of this whatever, this person of this whatever else, how can these people be friends? And the world looks at that, and they say, there must be something weird going on here. Because the church is a beautiful picture of evangelism because we have nothing in common except one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Friends, you're united together because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And this is particularly important for us in a suburban church because we have every reason, every reason to associate with people that are just like us, share our preferences, have everything that looks just like what we want it to look like. We've got to resist that temptation and live in the tension because we share together one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Even at the local level, we share the finished work of Jesus Christ in our hearts. Do you care about members in your local church because you're connected together with them? We have one head. We are unified. This is the body image. We also, therefore, grow together. It says in Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, it says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Question, what are you doing even right now? 
What are you doing to build up the body of Christ in love? Do you ever think about where you sit in worship? Do you ever think about who needs to be encouraged by you when you come to worship? Do you ever think when you walk through these doors, like, do you ever consciously think, now, how does Jesus intend to work in me this morning? Friends, you should evaluate your habits and you should evaluate the way that you walk into church on Sunday morning. Because your aim is to build each other up in love. If that means sit somewhere else, then that's easy. Encourage somebody that you don't know very well. Don't act like Congress. Cross the aisles. Be for each other. Love each other. Consciously think about how you come into church on Sunday morning prepared to build each other up in love. It says that we're joined and held together. Right? The Greek word there means to fit together, like a construction worker would fit together two materials, or like a surgeon, even better, would fit together an appendage onto a body. You know when surgeons implant things into a human body? They don't leave a barrier between what's implanted and the rest of the body, do they? They don't leave gauze underneath that wound. They don't leave gauze underneath those stitches. They don't leave instruments in that body. There's no barrier. But yet most of you, when you come to church, you've got a barrier. <laughs> you've got Teflon around your heart. So then it's possible. It's possible for you to, in, to invest into people, even for years, to disciple them and to invest in them and to commit to them your time and energy. But you've never really share the same blood supply because there's Teflon around your heart. There's gauze in the wound. And whenever you leave things like that in the body, when you have an implant, what happens? Infection sets in. And soon the infection could even travel to the bloodstream and infect the whole body. The Teflon around your heart causes infections in Christ's church. And we need to pull off the, individ the indivisible, the invisible, rather, coat of Teflon on our heart and be able to be joined together to share the same blood supply so that you see your brother and sister in Christ as irretrievably, one pastor has said it like this, to be irretrievably bound up with one another. That your joy is irretrievably bound up in one another so that when I come to church, and that when you come to church, and you are struggling, sister. Brother, you are hurting. There's part of me that can't be fully happy. Like, you know what this is like, parents? Like, my wife is home right now with our youngest. And like, as much as we, as she really wants to be joyful, when your baby hurts, you hurt. So also when your brothers and sisters in Christ hurt, your joy is irretrievably bound up with theirs. But do you share that amongst your practices? Is that evident in your practices? Do you share that amongst your brothers and sisters in Christ? There's Teflon around your heart. So that while we can say, yes, we are the image of the body of Christ, Paul gives us this beautiful image, thank you. We are under Christ, one head. We are unified, yes. The church 
invisible around the world, all those who are truly his. Yes, we are part of his, but also you are part of the body with the visible church, the local church, the church militant, the church that you see. But if you have Teflon around your heart, you will be playing church your whole life, but you'll never be the church. It is hard to take that Teflon off because you have been hurt by the church before. But Jesus has grafted you in. And how do you know if you have Teflon around your heart? Let me just give you two very simple signs that you know you have Teflon around your heart. The first sign that you have that you're really not the church, that you have Teflon around your heart, that there's a barrier between you and other people, is if you can't give criticism to other people. You can't give them criticism. Because while you can stand there in happiness, there's Teflon around your heart. You can stand there in happiness. It doesn't bother you. It doesn't cost you anything. Yet you can't criticize them because you cannot stand there in happiness with you. You can handle their unhappiness. You can handle they've had a bad week. You can handle that, oh, I'm so sorry that you're under financial strain. I'm so sorry that you're struggling in these areas. There's Teflon around your heart. But you'll, you can never criticize people because you're so deeply afraid that they won't be happy with you. Hmm? You can't give criticism. You can't help a brother or a sister see, listen, God's word says to do this. And I plead with you, please, Lord, help me. Help me to be a beautiful picture of the body of Christ by helping you. You can't give criticism. The other sign that you know that there's Teflon around your heart is that you can't receive criticism from your brothers and sisters. Because as soon as you receive that criticism from them, you're crushed and it ruins you. You feel so weak and you feel so dejected and you, still, you feel like you are lost because you've lived so much for the approval of other people. Listen, each of you come to church on Sunday morning. Each of you do this, and I know you do this because I do it. And I know you do this because you've told me that you do it. And so much of your mental energy is spent about how can I win the approval of my brothers and sisters at Trinity? What can I do that makes them think that I'm spiritual? What can I do to make them think that I have my family life all together? That when people who really are hurting come to church, they can't feel like they can be a church. Because we created a culture, even though we didn't intend to, that is so shallow and fake. We have Teflon around our hearts. We have these pieces of the body that are joined together with massive infections everywhere. And so it's no wonder you're frustrated at the elders because they're not being a good shepherd to you. They're so busy trying to fight the infections everywhere else. And plus, you can't take criticism. We need to be a church that is not judgmental, but we need to be able to give criticism and take it. When our view of the church is skewed, when our understanding of membership is quite weak, when we think that just as we do in every other area of our life, we're growing from dependence to independence, and we carry that into our spiritual vitality and growth, there's infection setting in because you are growing from independence to dependence the older that you get because you're a body. And you are more and more dependent upon the head, who is Christ our Lord. I have, um, I have some friends 
sisters who, in, in outside their bedroom for years growing up, they had a mirror on the wall. <laughs> and this mirror was their grandmother's. It was an old, old, old mirror. And on this mirror, they would walk out of their bedrooms every day. They'd see this full-length mirror on the wall. They couldn't miss it. It was just staring them right in the face. And this mirror was so old that it was warped. And so there was a fat side and there was a skinny side. And, and these sisters would walk out of their bedroom every day, all through their teenage years, and they would, they would walk along the skinny side of the mirror as they walked down the hallway. And they joked about it because the carpet made it plain that they walked down that side. It was worn thin. And so also you, there's a fat side and a skinny side. And you're always positioning yourself to show the skinny side of you. But friends, the church is the one institution, the one place where the requirement for membership is the admission that you do not deserve to be a member. Every other organization will say, tell me why you belong. Well, here's my resume. Here's my CV. Here's my life. Except the church. You only have to admit that you do not deserve to be a member. Oh, now you're in. The Teflon can come off. And what is the power to do this? You can speak about the body all you want. It's a great image. Thank you very much. But what is the power to do this? You cannot really understand your body image until you see your bridal portraits. Women, those of you who were at one time engaged or may now be engaged, when you look forward to your wedding day, it motivates you. It motivates you to get in shape, to become beautiful for your groom. And so also the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is engaged to Christ. He has won her, and now he is preparing her to become more and more beautiful. But he does not leave you on your own. I did a, a wedding not long ago. It was a very fancy wedding where there, it's very, very formal, and both sides had certain agreements that they had. Yes, they had agreements that they would not take first look pictures until after the wedding. They wanted that first look to actually be during the wedding when the bride walks down the aisle to see her groom. And I'm doing this wedding and these guys are behind me and we're walking into this beautiful chapel. And I look back behind me and, I, and it's like a minute before the wedding and I can't find the groom. That's not good. And and I looked back down the hallway, and this was like a, it was like Fort Knox, this church. Like there was a bridal chamber, and there was a groom's chamber, and there were bouncers at both chambers. You couldn't break through. And this groom, this groom knew his wife so well that he knew she'd be anxious, and he knew she'd be nervous, and he knew that she would be an emotional wreck. And he turned right before the wedding. He just wanted, he just wanted to reassure her of his love for her. And he turned, and he ran he ran from his groomsmen and from me minutes before the ceremony. He busted through into the, bridal's, the bridal chamber, the bridal area of the church, and he didn't know what door she was in. So he just screamed out, I love you. We're getting married. Isn't this awesome? I can't wait to see you. And then the big bouncers, like her cousins, took him and kicked him out and made him go back to the wedding. And there she was at the wedding. Beautiful. Friends, you're engaged to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has made you one together. And Jesus, 
doesn't just leave you on your own, but he busts through and he says, I love you. We're getting married. And he doesn't just tell you that he loves you. He shows you that he loves you because he gave his life for you. That's big time love, folks. You cannot be the body of Christ until you understand yourself as a bride. Isaiah says, for as a young woman marries, a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. At the very end of time, when the new Jerusalem comes down, John has a vision, and the vision, he says, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her bridegroom, spotless and blameless. Earlier he says, hallelujah, for the Lord our God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage supper of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. When you look down the aisle of salvation, one author has said, we see Christ standing there with anticipation, his knees buckling under the weight of the beauty that he has created and sustained with tears flowing at the thought of the delight that he takes in us. Only when you see that vision, friends, are you able to become the body of Christ he calls you to be. Jonathan Edwards wrote a diary where he just wrote all kinds of miscellaneous thoughts. He called it the miscellanies. And in miscellany 702, he tries to sum up the whole point of Scripture, and he says this. The end of the creation of God, the end not as in the last day, but the point, the purpose of the creation of God was to provide a spouse for his son, Jesus. And the end of all things in providence are to make way for the exceeding expressions of Christ's love to his spouse and for her exceeding close and intimate union with him and high and glorious enjoyment of him him and to bring this to pass and therefore the last thing and the issue of all things is the marriage of the lamb and the wedding day Edward says is the last day the day of judgment or rather it's the beginning of it the wedding feast is eternal and the love and the joys and the songs and the entertainment and the glories of the wedding never will be ended. It will be an everlasting wedding day. Your Savior is making you beautiful. And your brothers and sisters need you to help them become beautiful. Paul says, build each other up in love. You will have a distorted body image until you see your bridal portrait until you see that Jesus Christ is making you into a beautiful bride together. Do you know him as your bride? Do you know Jesus as your lover who's coming to woo you? He has burst through the bride's side of the church in his incarnation to tell you how much he loves you. And he gave his life and he rose again from the dead 
to put a signet ring on your finger. It's called the baptism of his church to be your engagement sign and seal and to sing over you his love forever and ever. That's worth celebrating. Do you know that kind of love? Let's pray. Father, we confess that many of us have very strange body issues. Our body image consumes us. We think about ourselves a lot. So we pray, Lord, that you will help us turn our gaze from ourself to your beauty and into the beauty that you are creating in us. Lord, help us to love each other so much that we can give criticism and we can take it because our approval, our identity, our security is rooted in the eternal security of your love for your church, the bride. And in so doing, help us to be true friends. Help us to be for Owasso and Bartlesville and Collinsville and Claremore and Skytook and Tulsa and the watching world a beautiful picture of your love for your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.